I got an email a couple of days ago from a guy named Dennis in Pearl River, Louisiana. I really, really enjoyed it, so I'd like to share it with you guys. Dennis says, I went fishing this morning, but after a short time I ran out of worms. Then I saw a cottonmouth with a frog in its mouth. Frogs are good bait. Knowing the snake couldn't bite me with the frog in its mouth, I grabbed it right behind the head, took the frog, and put it in my bait bucket. Now the dilemma was how to release the snake without getting bit. So I grabbed my bottle of Jack Daniels and poured a little whiskey in its mouth. Its eyes rolled back and it went limp. I released the snake into the lake without incident and carried on fishing, using the frog. Not long after, I felt a nudge on my foot. It was that damn snake returning with two more frogs in its mouth. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. This is a personal journal, it's an experiment. I'd like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee with my cat Frankie sitting next to me. And I'm hoping he doesn't make any noise today and I won't let him purr on the microphone like I did last week. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Ian Hunter, and I got to tour with Ian for two or three weeks over in the UK, and we recorded this in a hotel room. It was either in Bath or in Brighton, and I really don't remember which. The gigs have a way of running together, Sometimes, and the hotel rooms definitely look a lot alike. So I don't remember which it was, but uh, I hope you'll forgive that. Before we get into this, I'd like to say Ian went out of his way to make me feel welcome and at home and part of the touring family. And um, that's not always the way it is, but it says a lot about Ian. He was a really, really nice guy and a really down-to-earth guy. And um, I thank him very much for bringing me along on that tour. So with that in mind, you can find out everything you need to know about Ian at ianhunter.com. And I'd like for you guys to sit back and imagine we're all sitting in a hotel room in Bath or Brighton. And I really don't have the slightest idea which it was. Here's Ian Hunter. We met some of uh, Elvis's relatives who suggested a way of getting into Elvis's place, you know. This is all in the same night. And uh, well, Fally was there, our organ player, and, and I was there. Joe Walsh was there. He didn't get out of the limo, but we went around there. The plan was uh, he had all his family, cousins, second cousins, people like that, work for him, you know. So, well, there's a, there's a gate at the front where, oh, there used to be, you know. So a couple of the guys from who had been partying with us were also his relatives, so they engaged them in conversation while Fally and me sneaked in. And I sneaked, I went up the left-hand side, then round the back. Fally went to the front, got caught straight away. I went round the back and I tried the door and it was open. (laughs) So now I'm in a hallway, shag carpet on the walls, on the (laughs) ceiling, on the floor. 
there's a big gymnasium on the right, and there's another door in front of me. So I go to the next door, and I'm, I'm by now I'm we've had a few, you know, and we've done a gig, and uh, I tap on the door. I don't try and open it. Oh, I did try and open it. And it was locked. That was it. So I tap on the door, and his maid, I forget her name. She, she, this particular woman was his maid. She came to the the door, right? Yeah. And I said, I've come all the way from England. I'm a huge fan, you know, like I've got to see Elvis. And she's like, I don't advise it. He's just been to the movies. He's just come back. He did not like the movie. And I immediately got visions of him and his mates bouncing me off the walls, you know. <laughs> and I, so I was really, you know, fine, fine, that's enough. Because I'm in the house. This is, you know, trespassing, really. When, once you're in, right, it's illegal. So I go back out the door and the big van waiting for me outside with all these guys from the front. They want me to get in the van, right? And I ain't getting in the van because they're going to smack me. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I said, I'll walk, I'll walk. And they were like, well, we're right behind you. So I walked down that centre pathway from Graceland at like maybe one o'clock in the morning with the van behind me, the nativity scene on the right, which, which he always did, right? And nobody took a fucking photograph. <laughs> and it would have been amazing, you know? We played the Fillmore, Albert King headlining, Mott the Hoople in the middle, Freddie King opening, not a white face in the place. <laughs> Typical Bill Graham, you know? Yeah. And uh, we went down well. We even got an encore, but I think I told you that it was one of those encores like, yeah. Give them another, give them a chance, you know. <laughs> the weird thing was when you sung slow songs because they just started answering you. It's like, what is this? I mean, they're not, they're only, they weren't that far away. And they just thought, yeah, man, you know, like all this business, the first time I'd ever encountered like participation, you know. <laughs> yeah. But we got away with it. And Albert was lovely. Betty was a bit of an anglophile at the time. But Albert was, he was going down a storm. And he, uh, he came off and the place was going up through the roof. Bill Graham came running in the room, you know, like, you've got to go back on Albert. They're going to wreck the place if you don't go back on. And Albert's like, my corns, my back. <laughs> Didn't want to go back on. The last thing he wanted to do, you know. <laughs> and he was sitting in there with uh, Bo Diddley, Bo Diddley's brother. And uh, I'd bought uh, the Maltese Cross, which was a, a guitar I used to play at one point. And Albert couldn't get over it, you know. That's a mean motherfucker. You know. <laughs> Kept looking at it, and I'm like, well, you know, you can play mine if I can play yours. Because <laughs> he didn't like people messing with his V, you know. Yeah. But I got to play it in the end, he let me, because he was too inquisitive about mine. You know? <laughs> what did his play like? Was it good? Yeah, it was zero, 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 one, you know. <laughs> mine was 75 bucks out of a San Francisco porn shop. Horrible guitar, but it looked amazing. Whatever happened to that guitar? Oh, I sold it in times of deprivation. But uh, it, <laughs> 75 bucks, I think I got 165 pounds for it. And then Joe Elliott had one cloned. But he had it done with all Les Paul Jr. Part. I have it at home. It's brilliant. You know, it's a great sounding guitar. But the original is Thompson. They didn't really know what they were doing. The organ company, you know. Yeah. But what a madass to look at, Maltese Cross, you know. Yeah. A lot of Mother and Pearl and all that kind of stuff. And the guy that bought it told me, I met him later on a gig in Falmouth, 
And he said that um, he took the pick guard off one one time, and the guy who built it, his address was in there with a five dollar bill. Really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> did you get back in touch with him, or did anybody get in touch with him? He was trying to flog at me back. Now, now you know the hard times were sort of reasonably over. Yeah. And he figured I might just buy it back, but I was useful. Well, actually, we would get away with a lot because the American Harrys, you know, they didn't like them at all. You know, you couldn't go into redneck land, I mean, at all. You know, Texas, places like that, you, you just couldn't do that. But if you spoke loud enough with an English accent, there was always somebody there whose father, uncle, you know, had been in the Second World War, you know. Hmm. And uh, Fort Worth, the stockyards, yeah. I mean, we... We made killings down there because the, the white kids couldn't go down there with the hairy ones, you know. But somehow we could, you know. They wouldn't. They wouldn't hurt us. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, uh, melody makers, eighty-five bucks. You know, juniors, ninety-five. There's Pauls, one twenty-five, one fifty. You bring them back to England and you know sell them at that point because we were skint, you know. Did you meet Doug Som? Or oh, how, yeah. how were you aware of him at that time? That was pretty early for... Well, that was Guy Stevens, Mott's manager. He's a disc jockey at the scene club in London, and he Jagger would go to him for records. Jagger would know all the numbers, and Eric Burden would go to him. You know, he's quite a hip guy. So when he was managing us, so he would find all these odd things for us to do, and, and that was one of them, Doug Som. Much later on, he, Doug played downtown in New York, and Ronson and myself went down there. And uh, he said, do you want to get up? So I'm on piano, you know, and mix on guitar, you know. So he sort of sings one verse. Then he goes, take it, Mick. Doug doesn't know what's going on, because Mick has to think before he does something like that. He's got to put a melody into his head and then form it and then play it. Mick can't jam. So like two or three times during that song, you know, he went, take it, Mick. <laughs> and I could hardly play at the time, so I'm just holding the chords, you know. <laughs> Was it intimidating? No, not really. I think we were probably half cut at the time, you know. Yeah. No, it was okay. Was it hard to find out about when you said that guy was giving you records, uh, hip stuff. I mean, before the internet or anything, it would be really hard to find out about all of these things that were happening elsewhere. Well, that's why Liverpool got a head start, you know, because the Americans were coming in to the port. Um, we weren't too far behind because we were surrounded by American bases in Northampton. And uh, we played them. They paid more than the local. The military people. bases? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Hayford, I remember. I can't remember them all now, but there was about four or five of them. Fairford. I used to love going out there. You know, you could get the cigarettes and you could, cars were incredible, you know. It was a good night out and sometimes we took a couple of girls out. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> they right. And uh, all in all, it'd be a profitable evening, you know. Mm. But they would have all those, and they would come into Northampton as well. There was a place called the Mitre where all the black guys came in. They had a black jukebox, and the, they would bring all the records to play, and we would go down there and listen to all that stuff. You know, I remember Do You Love Me a couple of years before it was a hit, Contours. And then the white guys were maybe the cross keys, and it was still like a split between the whites and the blacks. And uh, they would have their pub. And their stuff was good too, you know. I mean, 
I go like, you know, Neil Sadaka before he went pansy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Were you digging Motown and things like that? or No, stacks, not so much. Or? No, that didn't really. I was a hardcore little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Chuck oh, yeah. Berry, you know. I like people like the Everleys and I like the Platters, stuff like that. But no, I didn't get into Billy or Stax. I, I didn't seem to, it seemed too soft for me. I love Jerry Lewis. My dad, it was his favorite. Yeah. And it reminds me of my dad to listen to Jerry Lewis. And yeah. It brings me back to a nice place. It's actually the best rock and roll show I've ever seen. Yeah. It was Jerry Lee Lewis just about 10 if years ago. he was ago. on, he would come here, you know, and he wouldn't, he'd do a third full everywhere. He would never sell a place out like, you know, Bill Haley or any of these people. But, but it was mad. Kids going berserk, you know. He just totally lost it with Jerry Lee. I don't know why. He just had that air about him. <laughs> Let's do anything. Yeah. <laughs> and later on, he played the Palladium. He seventies now, and he was he was doing really well. And he sold out the Palladium in London, you know. So uh, I'm there. This is when he was at his height, and uh, we're all really. I'm like a fan, you know. Like, sitting there waiting for the guy, you know. An 11-piece band comes out, country band Nashville. So they play a song, you know, and they play another song. They play the whole of the first half and still know Jerry Lee, you know. So then uh, there's a break. All right, well, you'll be on for the second half. <laughs> the band come back on, still know Jerry Lee. Four more songs. Then he, he, he saunters on, you know. He's got a red shirt, red trousers, Covered in red, you know, and he's got a brandy in one hand and a cigar in the other, right? And he walks up the front. Place goes ape. Yeah, and he goes, uh, good evening, everybody. This is Jeremy Lewis. Uh, London Palladium is sold out for tonight. <laughs> you know why the London Palladium sold out tonight? Because the killer's in the house. <laughs> he hasn't done a thing yet. I mean, three quarters of the way through, you know. Then he sits down at the piano, gets back up again, comes back to the front, pulls a comb out and combs his blonde lock, you know, the blonde lock. <laughs> By this time, half the, half the audience is like, they've left their seats. You know, and it's, um, you know, this is showmanship for you. He hasn't done anything. He did three songs, walked up to the mic and said, I've done just about as much as a man can do and walked off. <laughs> That's the best second-hand car dealing I've ever seen. Amazing. He would do that, you know, like Gene Vincent was another one would do that, you know. He didn't want to play. We couldn't understand it. We want to play all night, you know. He <laughs> <laughs> just want to get off and go home with the money. Did uh, you ever meet Jerry Lee? I didn't want to, no. Yeah. I had a weird experience uh, at the Wits. In, uh, his, their people wanted to be managed by my manager. And so they would... They were there, and they asked me, "Would I like to go and, uh, and you know, I forget how they put it, but anyway, I wound up on stage about three foot behind him at the Ritz. People are going, Ian, how are you doing? <laughs> if he'd have turned around, because he's not a nice man, you know. Yeah. I'll tell you, his band got off the front of the stage and went in the audience in between the sets. He didn't even go backstage. They went out into the audience. <laughs> that's, how, that's how he was. And... Uh, I sat there for about five minutes, and I was like, this is a nightmare. You know, I can't stop it. So I told the guy, I've got to go back. My wife's pregnant. She was. So this is like 30 years ago. But uh, no, I heard horror stories. Clifford, uh, I mean, uh, Keith Richards going in there and like, you know, 
It all depends what mood he was in, you know. But I never wanted to meet him. I, I don't think anybody should want to meet any of us. I mean, it's it's the message, not the messenger. Yeah. It's always a letdown, it seems like. Well, yeah. I mean, nobody's perfect. People set you up, you know. Yeah. No. And if you're on tour, you're not always... You're just no, I feel best. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever meet Little Richard or... Did I ever meet Little Richard? No, I met James Bain. I never met Little Richard. Uh, I saw Buddy Ollie. I saw Sam Cooke. Tell me about but, that. Uh, Where did you see Buddy Holly at? Leicester de Montfort Hall. 57, maybe. Yeah, first time I'd ever heard electric guitar. It was probably one of the first gigs I ever went to. He had a 30 watt, and then it went right up. It was about six foot tall. It was very weak. And then he had eight strats. It was like straight out of... Barbarella or something, you know, one of these, because all we have are these acoustic Hofners over here. <laughs> and the other, the, the crickets, they came on like really tight, you know, like stuck to each other, sort of came on. And there was one guy had a snare, and then the big guy, BJ, BJ Cole, is it, the bass player? He had a double bass, and it was like, you couldn't hear them. All you could hear was Buddy Ollie's voice and his, a reslo, you know, and the overtones. And then his, and he was remarkable. I mean, he really was. He was only a kid, right? Probably 24, 23. But the, everybody went down and they were trying to kiss his feet. And I'm thinking, well, he's good, you know, but I ain't going down there kissing his feet. <laughs> <laughs> was he playing through a twin? No, it was a big, tall thing. Maybe he had effects in. I don't know. I mean, there was no effects in those days, but it looked like it was... I've never seen one like that since. It was uh, maybe... It was as tall as he was, but sort of thin and narrow. I don't know what it was. They probably just flew him in and it's whatever they provided. Maybe. But there was no amps in England then. I mean, the, the kids used to play like converted radios, you know. Yeah. Probably sounded all right, too. Well, the Dude. guitar player would be five watts and the rest of you would be acoustic. I mean, that's what Skiffle was all about, you know. That's yeah. what most people were doing. Bonnie Donegan stuff, you know. Yeah. You remember your first amp? Yeah, I nicked it out of uh, a Watkins Dominator. I nicked it. Saturday morning, the shop was full. <laughs> Woolworths was next door, took it next door, put it in a carton at the back of Woolworths, an empty carton. And that was also my first cab ride because I figured, you know, <laughs> I've got to get out of here. <laughs> this is worth more than, a, you know, like a couple of quid for a cab. Yeah, I mean, that's what you had to do in those days. We had nothing. And I was working full time and I had nothing, you know. Earlier in the tour, you guys stopped off at a chip shop that you said you lived on top of. Yes. Is this uh, about that time, or was this earlier than that? No, that was a, that was Second World War. I was born '39. I lived there, uh, Hamilton in Lanarkshire in Scotland. I lived there from when I was three months old to when I was about five, and back down to Shropshire, and then not getting on with the folks. There's a place called Butlins which is the biggest legalised brothel, or was in England at that time. It's a holiday camp where you go when you've got no money and you really want to see a girl, you know. And uh, it was there that I met a couple of musicians and moved to Northampton. And that was where I started semi-pro playing and all the rest of it, you know. And then it's like, oh, I wonder what London's like. Northampton's only 68 miles from London, so your first tentative steps, you know. The van, sleep in the van, stay in Soho Square all night, you know, buy a showcase, fail miserably and go home again on the Monday morning. 
<laughs> until you until you actually got down there, and it's because uh, London was twice the rent of anywhere else. You know, you couldn't afford to stay down there, so it took a while before you actually. I was so jealous of people who were born there because they already were there. You know, it took thirty years, well, twenty eight years, twenty six years, I think it was, for me to get there. You know, did you feel left out? Did I? Something was happening in London, and it was cool, and you wanted to be part of it. I just didn't think I was good enough there. You know, I remember the Two Eyes Cafe, which was pretty famous in British music law. Uh, I went there once, and I saw a guy called Lance Fortune, who never really did anything. Cliff Richards, his band, Brian Bennett, and Licorice Lockham were backing him, and it was like out of this world. It was like this miles ahead of where we we're at. You know, I never thought I could ever combat that. But then the guy I was with, Freddie Fingers, Lee decided he would go to Hamburg and we started doing the Star Club, places like that, playing seven hours a night, seven nights a week. You know, and you learn how to get better. Yeah. How many hours a night would you play? You play, uh, the Star Club, you only played two, two hours. One, maybe 5 a.m., maybe one, 5 p.m. It was like seven bands. But when you weren't doing the Star Club, you were doing other clubs, you'd do seven, seven hours a night, 10 minutes off every hour. Nine on the weekend. The drummer wouldn't get up after the, you know, <laughs> just stay there, you know. Yeah. A lot of people singing or just you? No, no, I wasn't the singer. I was a bass player. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, this guy, Freddie Fingers Lee, who was Jerry Lee Lewis's double in England. Mm -hmm. That was the problem. I mean, he just naturally was. He just naturally loved the same music. Huge collection of country records, and his voice was exactly... And he played great piano. Left hand boogie was perfect, you know. So I played with him for a while. And that sort of got me from semi-pro to thinking about pro, you know. Did you have to mix up the set list very much? Or was it a different crowd every night? That would be different. They would come in uh, at the weekends. They'd start around, around, it would be maybe five to one in the morning. You know, about eight, a new lot would come in. And you could, you could... The first three lots you could do as the last three lots, you know. And he would just do 12 bars and wail. And, and the last, uh, the Star Club, sometimes at 5, 5 a.m. to 6 a.m., anybody that was left standing <laughs> from all the different bands would just get up and play, you know, which was neat because all of a sudden we got three sax players on there, you know, which we, we couldn't <laughs> afford. We, Oh, uh, yeah. There's a guy called Charlie Fane who was a prom promoter, and he also managed Sean Arnar. And we're sitting in a hotel in Indianapolis, and Charlie's got the money for the gig, which I think was 10 grand. And uh, it disappeared in the holiday and in the bar, and there was only maybe three or four, a couple of guys from the band, Charlie. And then there was a woman behind the bar, and there was a guy standing there. And they just, we told them about it, but they didn't do anything. They didn't shut the doors. They didn't lock the bar. They said, oh, what are you doing here? My dad was a cop, you see, so I've got a mouth. Why don't you shut the doors? You know, we've got to find out who did this. And the next thing I know, I'm handcuffed, and I'm, <laughs> he's an off-duty sergeant, this guy. So I'm down there. I'm in the Indianapolis City Jail overnight, and uh, fine 38 bucks the following morning. The judge didn't even look at me. The sergeant went up and whispered in his ear. But Charlie never got his 10 grand back. You know, and and Charlie sort of kind of understood. I didn't come in from England. I was outraged, you know, but Charlie was, look, no questions asked. I just want this money back, you know. 
I'm like, shut the place. We've got to get the guy, you know. <laughs> Not a good idea. I remember being in there in the holding cell because they, you're, you're in the prison, then you go down the holding cell, which is below the court. And there's all these guys and uh, they're all talking about the gig that night that we're playing, you know, and I haven't got my glasses on. They're taking my glasses away then, so they don't know it's me, you know. And, I mean, I was so happy they didn't know it was me. I got bags under my eyes from lying on a steel bench all night, you know, with pee all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> and my band could have bailed me at 2 a.m. and they didn't because it would have cost them 400 bucks. Oh. <laughs> That's the esteem I was held in. <laughs> Stan Tippins, the tour manager, could barely restrain himself from laughing. He came, I mean, he came about midnight, and uh, it was it was 16 gigs in a row, and we had a deal where, like, you had your own room once every three or four days because you had to share, you know. This was the day I got my own room. I'd been out and bought wine that morning. I had a little altar at the bottom of the bed there. <laughs> this is all out the window. <laughs> and Stan comes in with a couple of jumpers, and a jacket, because I said, it's, I don't know what happened. And maybe he phoned me or I, I said, it's cold in here, you know. So we brought him and he's like, trying not to laugh. <laughs> so I've got the jackets and everything, yeah. which I never got. They disappeared in, into institutional land, you know. Yeah. All in all, you know, breakfast the following morning. It was an experience and I got just another night out of it, which is a song on to get the funny. Uh, we, we we moved into a horrible hotel in Evansville, Indiana, and then somebody said, "Well, why don't we check around for other hotels?" But you know it is. Once you're in, you don't want, you can't be bothered. But somebody did, and we found this amazing hotel just down the block, and it was a Olympic-sized swimming pool. It was a beautiful hotel, and it was the same money, you know. And so we go in there, and it's me and Ronson, that band we had, Hunter Ronson, and. Uh, he said, "Let's go down. Uh, let's go and have a swim." You know. Well, we weren't in great shape. You know, we smoked a couple of backpacks a day, you know, and he liked brandy and I liked beer. And so we go down there, we've got silly Bermuda shorts on, and we're going down there and we're sitting by the pool, you know, drinking and, and having a fag. And uh, he said, let's go, let's do, let's do a lap, you know. So we did the lap, and it was kind of like crawl, dog paddle, breaststroke, you know, anything. It's a long way a lap in an Olympic sized swimming pool. And then he said, well, let's go back. So we, Fought our way back, we got out, and it was like, shit, no problem, you know. <laughs> Feeling really fit as we lit another fag, you know. And uh, we just sat down. All of a sudden, like halfway down the pool, there's like a, a, an opening uh, from locker rooms, and two of these teams came out, and they were all big guys, maybe 18, 21, 20, somewhere around there. Uh, one lot had blue gear on, the other lot had red gear on, and... The one lot raced down the one end of the pool and the other lot raced down the other end of the pool. And they commenced to like two to a lane, you know, crossing each other halfway, right? And they're doing this for 45 minutes. Up, down, up, down, flat out. And me and him are just sitting there. <laughs> I never said a word to him. He never said a word to me. It was like, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> we must be wrecks, you know. <laughs> and it turned out this, this, this place was... Uh, these kids were, you know, the local champions or whatever it was, you know. But uh, we had been feeling quite good about ourselves there for about five minutes. And then that was there, the end of that. <laughs> Mick was hilarious. I remember I got the key of the city of Cleveland one night, and the same night we were, we were down on the waterfront, and uh, we went in this bar, and he wound up, he, he challenged the biggest guy in the bar. 
who was huge to a fight. And the guy was looking at him like, if I touch him, I'll kill him because he was a squirt, you know what I mean? Mick was 5'8 and weighed about 140 pounds, you know. But he'd, if he had a few, you know, he would become really obnoxious and it was always with the biggest bloke in the room for some reason. And I'm like, I just got the key to Silly this morning and now I'm going to get drowned. <laughs> <You know. laughs> he was hilarious, Mick. Told the same joke for a year in the dressing room to people who came in to visit us every night and would laugh at his own joke <laughs> louder than anybody else. And that's what they were laughing at. They weren't laughing at the joke. The joke was crap. They were laughing at him laughing at it. <laughs> and after, you know, and I'd be like, do it somewhere else, you know. And all these girls would be looking at me like, you don't like Mick. Poor Mick. Because Mick was the girls kind of guy, you oh, know yeah. what I mean? And I was the big, I was a big bad guy that wouldn't let him sing on stage, you know. <laughs> It was like, will you sing a song? No. <laughs> Would not sing, you know, because he didn't want to go away from his amp. He hated monitors. He didn't like, you know, he didn't like the sound of monitors. So he was always, you know, he went out. After Bowie retired, DeFries was going to make him the second Bowie. And he had a nine-piece band and everything. But he just couldn't do it because he hated being away from the amp, you know. Couldn't go on the middle mic. He never wanted to do it. He just liked it where he was. But, you know, all the girls would be like, let Mick sing, let Mick sing. <laughs> oh, so he worked with um, the New York Cosmos around, uh, I don't know, late 70s. And uh, I... Chinalia, Giorgio Chinalia, he was another one. It was quite, it was a great team. The only problem was there weren't too many other teams that were great, you know. I think George Best was playing for LA and Trevor Francis was playing for Detroit. I knew Trevor. He was Britain's first million pound footballer. Okay. Uh, Who did he play for in Britain? Birmingham. Yeah. He played for England. He's a very, uh, he became a manager at the end, very uh, by the code type, quiet kind of player. He'd come to gigs, but you wouldn't see him afterwards, you know, he'd be, he'd be gone out. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I saw Pally, the banana kick. So I saw two free kicks in one game. Just, they're all lined up in front of him, and he just sent the ball <laughs> round the side and then back into the bottom left hand side of the post. <laughs> Turned around and laughed. <laughs> and then did it again later on in the game. Turned around and laughed again, you know. Unbelievable. How does a banana kick uh, for American friends that don't understand what that might be? Well, what happens is normally with soccer, you know, if you've got a free kick maybe on the 20-yard line, somewhere 18-yard line, something like that, all their defense is going to line up to protect the goal. Yeah. And so you can't shoot through them. And if you go over them, you'll probably go over the crossbar as well. So it's not a goal. Yeah. But if you go around them, you know, like a complete U-turn, uh, which is what he used to do. Nobody could, nobody could figure it out and nobody could do anything about it. You know, If he hit it right, it was in. Nobody stood a chance. So it would curve around the people and right into the goal. Yeah. Shaped like a banana, I guess. And then later on, when we were living in New York, uh, off the end of 25th Street, Waterside, um, my wife was working for the UN. She was the assistant, the principal. And Pally's son was there. And... Uh, my wife was in charge of telling him off for not turning up and not doing his homework properly and stuff like this. And the kid was like, you're out of your mind. Got about 15 clubs chasing me, you know. 
that that was the UN school. So there was limo, nothing but limo after limo turning up every day. Kids from all over the world, you know. Yeah. Pretty amazing education for, for Jess, you know, my my youngest. Mm. It was about oh, five years, something like that. Did you get to meet Pele at all? No, no. Okay. I remember George Best, Manchester United, probably the greatest player uh, England ever produced. Well, Ireland, actually. He was Irish. And um, he came to Northampton, where I lived, and he's, they, they won 7-0, and he scored six of the goals. Man rings around everybody, and, and Northampton, the, the, the Northampton team just lined up and applauded him as he left the field. It was like, <laughs> we, gi- we give up. <laughs> <laughs> Ollie came out with one that was yesterday on the, on the bus. It was about a poaching in a lake, and the guy was he was he, he was fishing in the lake, right? And he caught two or three fish, and they're in the bucket, you know, like. And uh, the guy that you know the the guy who, who polices the lake comes up and says, uh, "What are you doing with other fish?" And he says, uh, "Well." Uh, they're my fish. I'll keep them at home, actually. And the bloke said, what are you talking about? Well, he said, I, what I do is I've got them in a little pond at home in the backyard, but the pond's not very big and they get bored, you know. So I bring them down here in a bucket, right? And then I let them, I throw them in the lake, you know, and they, they have a good run round for about an hour, you know. And then I call them in and they come back, you know. And I put them in the bucket and I go, oh, <laughs> the guy said... <laughs> The guy said, I don't believe you. And the, and the father said, well, watch this. And he throw, gets the bucket and throws it in the lake with all the fish in it. Right? Fish go off. He said, all right, then we'll, we'll call him back. And he said, call who back? <laughs> <laughs> That's all his best for a long time. <laughs> We're talking about Steve Ollie, the drummer that's in my band. It's a good. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to to do this and putting up with me. Well, it's a pleasure, Otis, and uh, thanks for letting us close for you on this uh, memorable tour. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in and I'd like to thank Ian for treating me so well and giving me the opportunity to tour with him and then uh, actually doing this show with me also. And you can find out everything you need to know about Ian at ianhunter.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can get a photograph, one of my photographic prints, you can download any album I've ever recorded You can even pick up a copy of Amy's record there. And uh, anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even include a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. And uh, leave a comment on there. All of that helps us move up in the search rankings, and uh, it helps a lot more people find out about this show. You guys have been doing a great job, so we really, really appreciate the help with that. But if you enjoy my music or you enjoy Amy's music, 
please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And uh, if you'd like to send us an email, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.